In our scientific age, atheists demand evidence for the existence of God. For me, one of the weightiest bits of evidence that God exists is simply the prevalence of belief in God. Many persons claim not only to believe that God exists, but to know him and have a relationship with him. And this requires an explanation. And it's not enough, I think, just to say it's some mass delusion, like Richard Dawkins says, because that's just kicking the can down the road. Why this delusion? Uh, Why does this keep cropping up? One answer that Dawkins might make is that ancient persons were trying to explain the natural world, and they didn't have science. In other words, ancient persons were failed versions of himself. Um, A more political version of this would claim that the invention of the gods was a kind of cynical ploy by authority to consolidate power over an awestruck populace. But contemporary atheists are hardly the first to speculate on this problem. In fact, the biblical book of wisdom already gives a number of explanations for the origin of the gods, or idols, as the author would have it. He notes that all peoples long for beauty, and that beauty, the beauty of the cosmos moves the observer to imagine that, say, the mysteriously remote magnificence of the stars betokened divinity. Uh, there's a longing for this reality that these beautiful things seem to have. There's a longing for power, the power that fire and water have, signify the presence of the divine. Elsewhere, the biblical author speculates that a grieving father would make a statue of a recently lost young child, and that his attachment to this statue would grow into a kind of piety, and that the dead child would undergo apotheosis, uh, divinization. In the last 200 years, learned explanations have become more and more sophisticated, though I must exclude Mr. Dawkins from that sophistication. In the early 19th century, Ludwig Ludwig Feuerbach saw God as an outward projection of humanity's inward nature, in some sense representing the infinite desire uh, that we have for order, for meaning, for goodness. We observe this in ourselves and in others, and Feuerbach says then we project this onto God. Emil Durkheim takes up this idea and applies it anthropologically so that God becomes a representation not just of interior of one person, but of collective society as we imagine it together. We project society onto God. The most ambitious and to me the profoundest attempt to account for the origin of the gods is that of René Girard. Girard, whose work drew him back to his Catholic faith, noted not only the widespread belief of gods, so he sees that this is evidence, as I would say it is, uh, but he notices it's always connected uh, to violence. And it's encoded in the ubiquitous practice of sacrifice in the ancient world. He noted the catharsis that takes place when a tense and fearful community focuses its anxiety and violence unanimously on a victim. That is, when a community chooses a scapegoat. And the killing or banishment of the scapegoat brings about peace and restores order to the community and uh, for the individuals that make up the community. And therefore, the scapegoated victim paradoxically becomes a benefactor to the community and gradually becomes a god in the community's mythological imagination. 
And the connection with authority that I mentioned very early on comes about because kings and others in positions of governance are extremely convenient scapegoats when everything goes wrong. It's easy to blame for everyone's problems. There's one exception to this mechanism, though, and that is the Old Testament. The prophets of Israel, that fiercely monotheistic nation, are constantly alerting the people to the arbitrary injustice at the heart of human society, this need to make scapegoats. So the prophets side with those people who are the typical scapegoats, the poor, the oppressed, uh, the alien, etc. They point to this arbitrary injustice, this need to generate peace by generating victims. Now, I bring all of this up, and I hope it's interesting to you, because the constant in this, I think, is human desire. All of these different persons are talking about human desire. We all have desires, and some of them we recognize are not so good. But all of them leave us in need of fulfillment. We're recognizing that we're not complete without the thing that we desire. Unfulfilled desire leaves us vulnerable, anxious, and fearful. Perhaps worst of all, the noblest things that we desire, justice, truth, and beauty, are always just out of our reach. We can't get at the fullness of truth. We can't generate justice by ourselves. Uh, But we want these things. We need them. This is that infinite desire that Feuerbach, I think, rightly focuses on. And what we proclaim today is that the greatest desire of earth, what all human beings long for in some way, is no longer out of reach. And it's not because we've figured out how, finally, we can attain the truth or justice, but because truth himself came to us. The Son of God validates the best of human desire by becoming human, sharing these desires with us. So Jesus hungers and thirsts. He has friends. He attends wedding banquets and public festivals. He restores children to bereaved parents. He feeds the hungry multitude. He quiets threatening waves. He restores lepers to human contact by cleansing them. But profoundest of all, he desires to do his Father's will as the one thing necessary. He desires justice, true justice, He desires that all men see in the beauty of the cosmos God's great love for those made in his image and likeness. And he desires that all be set free by knowing the truth. In the incarnation which we celebrate today, truth has come down from heaven and in taking human nature to himself has made justice itself spring up from the earth. The idols of the nations then are an image of distorted desire. Jesus is recognized, even in his lifetime, as the true fulfillment of all that is best in what we desire. So the Apostle Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We found him, of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote. After the resurrection, the two disciples on the road to Emmaus unwittingly said to Jesus himself, We had hoped that he would be the one to redeem Israel. In other words, we hoped that he would vindicate the one true transcending God and the devotion to this true God shown by his chosen and faithful people, Israel. So today, my brothers, I ask you that we ask ourselves, what is it that I desire? What do we want? How has our Lord Jesus offered us the fulfillment of this desire in his incarnation? 
How has he invited us to be patient in awaiting the fulfillment of this desire by learning to be his cross-carrying disciples? And in this moment of anxiety, how can we follow the prophets in pointing to Jesus and away from the danger of choosing scapegoats for our suffering? Let us, like the Virgin Mary and her son, begin by saying to our common father, Thy will be done.